0: Some common sense. Yes,
1: sir. They have a the car stopped in 10 by the microbiome.
0: We still don't know who pulled the trigger. and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. All well, this is a new show today, and it's called, it's the second episode of the Law and Crime Author Series. And how privileged I am to have the magnificent, the great Barbara Butcher, who I also must admit to is a friend, so I can't, uh, when I hit her with all these great adjectives, <laughs> I have to admit, uh, I'll testify she is my friend, but she has come out with this book. That, you know, I'm not a, a voracious reader, believe me. I, I, I'd i rather watch something than read it most of the time. And I picked up Barbara's book and I couldn't put it down. I read it in three days. I was very proud of myself. I was going to call my third grade teacher and tell her that she did a good job teaching me. Well, I guess you learned to read before that. Maybe it was a first or second grade teacher. How uh, I just went right through this book because it was so interesting. And it, it's just a, a, the kind of book that um, it keeps you glued to your seat, and you and you don't you don't want to put it down because you're afraid that uh, you know you you're not gonna you're not gonna know what happened next, and that's the kind of book. And I want to before I go any further with this, I want to introduce the wonderful Barbara Butcher. Barbara, welcome.
1: <laughs> well, wow, what a terrific introduction! Thank you so much, Bill. Um, I know you're an action kind of guy. I I don't picture you as a big reader, but I'm glad you liked it. I'm really glad.
0: You know, Barbara, I wish I was because I think also as you you get older and your brain starts turning to putty, uh, that's the the only way you pick up new vocabulary is really to read, you know? (laughs) And I noticed that as I get older, my vocabulary is what it was 20 years ago. When I stopped growing, you know, I was a college professor for a while and I picked up new words from being in academia. And then when you're not teaching any longer, you're just like, ah, eh, let me go back to my street lingo, you know.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so, you've you've always been an articulate guy. I mean, I no one describes the scene the way you do, right?
0: Well, thank you, How Barbara. Many- I wanna I wanna put your book on the screen and also probably a very recent p- picture of you. Well, oh, first I want to put this old picture. I was like, who is that? Oh, my God. <laughs> wow, that... that's that's like 20 years ago. Is that Barbara Butcher? Yeah, yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, it is, wow. right? We yeah. all change, you know, we all change. In many I know. Ways, some, some ways we like, some ways we like, oh, I wish I could look the way I looked 20 years <laughs> ago, but uh, that's, that's not possible. Anyway, here's the most recent photo. And, of course, the book is What the Dead Know. And I'm going to read a little bit of the uh, – Of the forward, once you know the smell of death, you can pick it out in a flower shop. Strangely sweet with a bitter undertone, like a strawberry milkshake made with garlic. After a few weeks on the job, I could walk any block in New York and point out a building where someone was decomposing. Barbara Butcher knew what dark places were like. As her lowest point, alcohol addiction cost her nearly everything, including her life. Fighting back from her losses and her self-destructive path, she got sober and landed a job at the medical examiner's office in New York City. I don't want to go any further because I have you here. What the hell would I read your book to my audience for? (laughs) Uh, You know, Barbara, first of all, one one of the the fascinating things about you and the reason I love you is that you have a great sense of humor. You you could have been a stand-up comic. I know you dabbled in acting like I have. And I yeah. also dabbled in stand-up comedy. I was like, you know something? She's a natural. I should get her to start doing stand-up. But um, And that was why you were so great when you taught at the criminal investigation course for the NYPD. Everyone loved your course because they were like, oh, she knows this stuff, but she's dark, but then she's funny as hell.
1: <laughs> oh, I love teaching that course. Um, I taught homicide and CIC. At the academy and um <clears throat> excuse me those were some of the happiest days of my life i mean what could be better than a room full of 200 detectives most of them male most of them um a little awestruck like who is this broad and why is she telling me details of knife wounds i mean jesus she really goes deep on this and then suddenly turning it and it, like explaining to them autoerotic asphyxiation, how to hang yourself during masturbation. And I'd say, all right, guys, don't try this at home. Oh, wait, you went the back there. <laughs> yeah, I, I see you nodding. Like, yeah, you know. All right, call me, okay? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's what
0: cops have a macabre sense of humor, much like you do. Yeah. And we have, you know, what's been referred to as a sick sense of humor. But when you see the things that we've seen, yeah, really necessary to, to have that sense of humor, to be a yeah. joke, because you can't go home to your family. And I remember a couple of times going home to my family and there was this murder I was working on. My son was like five or six years old. He goes, Dad, did you get him today? You know, that guy Mundo. And like he knew the names, the characters in the case. And it wasn't like I was talking to my wife and he was listening, you know, and I was like, I wonder yeah. if that's OK. You know, that mm. you hear this stuff, you know. And I didn't usually talk about it a lot at home, but sometimes things would sneak out, you know.
1: Yeah, and, you know, that's that was one of the hardest things about the job. I mean, we had our humor as a relief from the tension of the horror, the tragedies, the terror that we saw, the evil, if you will. And then you want to talk to somebody, but you certainly can't go home to your partner. I mean, they didn't sign up for this business. You can't go home and tell them about the decapitated uh, woman you saw over on the East River. You can't do that. It's not fair to them. So maybe you want to talk to your buddies, but we always kept up that pose of strength. Like, yeah, I saw this thing today. What a sad, Jesus Christ, that was awful. But did we talk about feelings? Nah. Was that a mistake? In my case, yeah. In my case, the feelings built up and up and up into anger And resentment and fear, you know, fear of evil. And um, one of the things, you know, they always told us was you have to detach from your emotions. Like we'd walk into a scene, Bill, and and you know, see a kid dead on the floor, shot in the 12 year old, and his parents dead in the living room. And I'd walk in, I'd be like, Oh, Jesus, the kid, did he oh geez, did he see it coming? And then quick boom, drop the cat drop the curtain, detach, detach from my feelings, detach from my thoughts, because I need to do the job to get justice for this kid, for his family, and uh, to get answers. I mean, there's no way I could feel my emotions. So I shut it down hard. I, I don't think in the children's scenes, I ever made jokes, but sometimes we did on, on, you know other other cases yeah how you doing how the yankees doing oh jesus this guy <laughs> looks like he took a hit from a baseball bat he should have been in the in the majors right. but, you know it was that was that was a a, a a way to deal a way to cope but what happened well when you switch off one emotion you switch off all of them and eventually that's going to screw up your marriage your relationships with your friends and uh yeah unfortunately that kind of went that way well you what know you barbara
0: do? I, I don't think it's unique to yourself and i'm not going to go into it. you can later if you want but alcoholism is a problem not just in our profession the police profession your profession lots of professions stockbrokers lawyers it, it, it's yeah. it's it's really how people self medicate you know for yeah. the whatever they can't deal with in life and I think it's, you know, I come from an Irish family. I think it, out of my family, probably my father was an alcoholic. I got brothers that were alcohol. So it's a long line of, it's, I, people would say, and I don't want to say anything prejudiced against Irish people because I happen to be one, but it is, it's more or less accepted in like in our culture, in the Irish culture uh, that yeah. it's accepted to like, whereas my wife is Jewish. And that's clearly not an accepted behavior. Like I've had <laughs> this our family be concerned about how much I drink, you know, yeah. and I was just like, well, when I'm around them, I got to chill. You know, I can't. Uh... Yeah. And, I, I th- and I think I have a pretty good handle on drinking, especially now I don't drink much at all. But, you know, to them, you know, drinking is having a glass of wine. To us, yeah. it's knocking out the bottle and opening the next one.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. It's whiskey with a chaser. Um, yeah, I mean, alcoholism is rampant in the job, and it is a way to dull those feelings, dull the the sorrow you feel. And uh, I was lucky that I got sober before I got the job. I mean, I got the job because I got sober, quite frankly. Um, I was, I was a, a party girl from way back. And then it went from party to blackout drinking, like, you know, it's not so much fun anymore. And uh, on my last drunk, I was completely blacked out, woke up on the floor, tangled up in sweaty sheets, had no idea what the hell had gone on. And uh, long story short, I walked into an AA meeting and I stayed, I went one day, I went the next day, I kept going and 32 years later, I'm still not drinking. So the, the real, the, the strange thing that came out of it, out of getting sober, was that they give you all these vocational services, if you want, uh, through New York State EPRA program, the Employment Program for Recovering Alcoholics. So the, the counselor, they give me all these tests, uh, Minnesota, multiphasic, Myers-Briggs, preferential, blah, blah, occupational. And at the end of the testing, the guy says to me, Barbara, you should either be a poultry veterinarian or a coroner. I said, poultry? <laughs> Why poultry? He said, well, you're good with diagnostics. I had been a, a, a physician assistant. And uh, he says, you're good with that. But if you work with puppies and kittens, it's going to twist your emotions up. When they die you know you feel real bad but chickens who cares about chickens they have beady little eyes nobody likes them go work with chickens i said no i think i'll take dead people because dead people they're already dead how could i be upset well i completely forgot that they have families and those families are grieving and in deep sorrow and those feelings are all around us so i uh, he said call the one person in New York city who you think has the best job in the world. So I called Charles Hirsch, chief medical examiner of New York. I said, can I come and talk to you about your work? Yeah, come on in. They wind up offering me a job. It was like, wow, the dream of a lifetime. I'd always wanted to be a cop, but back in my day, women weren't as welcome and people with who wore glasses were not as welcome and my father told me, and he was a deputy inspector, he said, uh, no, you join that force, the city's gonna eat you up, chew you, spit you out, they'll ruin your life. And uh, he didn't want me to do it. So now here I got a chance, I can investigate deaths, I can hang out with cops, um, and I'm a nosy person, not just curious, but nosy. I can probe the lives of New Yorkers, see how everybody lives. Because, you know, we live a lot of crazy ways in this town, absolutely, as you well know.
0: <laughs> you know, Barbara, before we jump into, and we've almost did that already, of um, what your job was like as a medical legal invest- investigator. And I'll have you define that. And I know you were much more than a medical legal investigator. We'll get into that. But let's talk a little bit about your, uh, your childhood. You grew up on Long Island, just just a little bit. We don't have to go deeply into it. Tell us about your childhood.
1: Um, I was born in Brooklyn, but raised in Massapequa Park. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because the the guy arrested for the Gilgo Beach serial killings lives just a few blocks from me in Massapequa Park and indeed went to my high school. I went to high school with his sister in my class. And uh, yeah, so that's why that's familiar. But anyway. As a kid, I'm very curious and I like science. So my parents buy me a dissecting kit for my birthday and a frog, a dead frog in formaldehyde. And I dissect it and I see all the little muscles and nerves and bones and figure out how things work. Wow. This is so cool. So all the kids in the neighborhood start bringing me roadkill, you know, and they bring me a possum and I say, Oh, you see the little zigzag marks across his back? That's tire treads. So his little rib cage got crushed, and that's how he died. He was run over by a car. Ooh, wow. She knows a lot of cool stuff. <laughs> and then, you know, those, those little scientist dreams kind of died out as I became more of a party person than a student. Um, but I did, you know, I, I, I had periods when I, I came back to myself and, and studied and, and had a a decent career Um, first as a PA and then as a hospital administrator. But then, you know, things happen. You start drinking again, nosedive.
0: But it seemed Barbara that from when I read the book, it seemed that you hated being a hospital administrator. You just did not, you did not take to that job like a duck to water.
1: (laughs) No. No, I was bored. I was bored. Um, I had uh, helped, you know, I, I had gone to Columbia University to get a master's in public health, and I decided to try and get an MBA at the same time. And uh, it was that was kind of fun. I, I, I like learning. I like studying. But then when they offered me this job as a hospital administrator, I thought, wow, this could be really cool. I could make some changes here up in the South Bronx. And I, I did have some fun with that, you know, building clinics for poor people and such. But the rest of the time I was just bored. And uh, so again, what I call a god shot. Alcoholism gets me this job, losing that hospital, getting fired from that hospital job. It gives me the impetus to move into something I really love. And death investigation was the coolest, most interesting career in the whole world. And what could be better? Everything bad that happened became a gift later on because it led me where I was supposed to be.
0: Isn't which it was... funny, Barbara, isn't it funny how life is like that, that yeah. you said, oh, I wish I didn't do that, but if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be doing this. And if I didn't do this, I would be doing, you know, so it is funny how the path, I don't know, it's probably called something more poetic than the way I'm explaining it. But sometimes you have to go do some bad things to reach where you want to go. Absolutely.
1: And I think everything bad that ever happened in my life led me to someplace good. I mean, like you ever been in a relationship and it's it's passionate, it's wild, it's romantic. And then it ends and your heart is crushed and broken. And then eventually you get over it. And you meet somebody better. And then you look back and say, wait a second, what the hell was I doing with that asshole?
0: You know? <laughs> <laughs> no, because you could see when you are removed from you, you could see it wasn't right.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know but
0: when you're involved in it, you, you don't necessarily recognize it that it was, you
1: know. Exactly, and there's a there's a saying: uh, rejection is God's protection. It's like a way to get you out of a bad place when somebody you rejects a, you. You have
0: all these good cliches, you know. One of yeah. my favorite things about AA, the, the expression was the, the, the code. Are you a friend of Bill?
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like a wise. It's
0: like a wise guy saying. Is he yeah. a friend of yours or is he a friend of ours? You know? Yeah. The exactly. Bill, me the, yeah, he's in AA too, you know. But yep. I just thought because Bill, who I don't know the guy's last year, he was the founder of AA, and I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. There's a little code there, you know.
1: That's but, right.
0: Uh, <laughs> 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 Are you a friend of Bill? you do like, oh, no, no, oh that's me. <laughs> yeah. so, all right, Barbara, so let's get into now to find I and I know you your title was the chief of staff of the uh Office of the Chief Medical Examiner for New York City, but what your title was when you first started was a medical legal investigator. That's Describe right. to our listeners and the would-be readers of your book, hopefully everyone's going to buy your book after this, tell, tell us what a medical legal investigator is and what the person does.
1: Well, most people don't know about us because we're not on television. You see, on a TV show uh, about medical examiners or coroners, you'll see... A uh, forensic pathologist is is doing an autopsy, and then suddenly they're called for a murder. So what do they do? They leave the body on on the table and run out? No, that's not real at all. Forensic pathologists like Quincy and all these folks, they don't go to death scenes. They're too busy with autopsies. And an autopsy gives you a cause of death, like gunshot wound, stab wound, heart attack, cancer but it doesn't give you a context for the death. Like what's the manner of death? Is it a homicide, suicide, uh, accident, or a natural? And how you find that out is by investigating the scene. So scene investigators like me, you go, the police call, they say, oh, we got a guy dead in the 3-4 precinct laying in his apartment. Looks like the apartment has been ransacked. Looks like a homicide. So we go there and um, do an investigation. We examine the body at the scene, take photographs. We explore the scene, look for drugs, medications, weapons, all kinds of things. And we take our photos, we make our determinations as to the nature of this death. And that's all in conjunction with the police. Now, it's supposed to be a completely independent investigation. And it is, many times we disagreed on a matter of death, but you got to work together, of course. So for instance, if we suspected um, a homicide on a death, I would never start moving the body around or examining it until crime scene got there because I didn't want to lose any evidence. So when crime scene arrived, I'd have done my photos, they did their photos, and then we'd examine the body and I'd show them everything I was seeing. Uh, look here, you see the angle of that stab wound? Oh, and wait, it's got sharp on one side. The other side is kind of blunt. I think we're looking at a hunting knife here with a hilt. So it was a, it was a cooperative and mutually beneficial investigation. Um, so then I'd write a report and take my photos, label them all up, and give them to the forensic pathologist. Now, when they did the autopsy, they could say, oh, yeah, gunshot wound, suicide, based on my scene investigation. So that's how that always worked.
0: Would you attend every autopsy in which you responded to the scene of the the potential homicide?
1: Would you uh, go to that autopsy? I'd try to, um, but I was working shifts all over the place. I was the overtime queen of New York City. In fact, I was number three for the whole city in New York according to the new york post so no i couldn't see every autopsy but in the mornings i'd go on rounds when you go down to the morgue with dr hirsch and we'd stop at each table and hear the story of what the investigator saw i'd tell my story of my cases and uh you know we'd see what they were finding but i didn't see everyone barbara one of the funniest
0: stories i think is and i ran this by you one time, and I think it was actually in one version was, was in your book, not because I brought it up, but I said, Barbara, it's very important. And your one part of your job is to determine time of death. And there's numerous ways to do that, of course. And the body temperature is one, right? There's decomposition, rigor mortis, algor mortis, putrefaction, all these fancy terms. But the best way to first is to look in the person's phone and see the last (laughs) phone call they took because if they were talking to someone on the
1: phone, don't do any scientific bullshit that's going to go against that, right? That's right. That's like that case I did with the elderly man who was like the patriarch of this huge family. They're all gathered in the apartment and this 98-year-old guy is laying dead in the bed. And the, the daughter says to me, oh, can you please find out exactly what time he died? so we can have a special mass said for his soul. I said, of course. I was a rookie, and I thought, yeah, I could do anything. And I go in there, and I make all my little scientific calculations, rigor mortis, algal mortis, liver mortis, uh, this, this, that. And I came out to the room, and I said, he died at 11 p.m. And the daughter, shrieked, no, I spoke to him at midnight. And I, do you think, uh, uh, and I said, oh, wait, 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 uh, calculation error. Oh yes. Yes. I see here. Oh, actually it was, uh, yeah, I forgot the most important question of all. When was the last time anyone saw him alive or spoke to him alive? Oh, did he make any phone calls? It was the most important question of all. And I blew it and I never made that mistake again, of course.
0: Right, or when was the even a, knocking on a neighbor's door when was the last time you saw him oh I saw him today and you know boom yeah. there goes all the science out the window if it was going to go against when this person last saw him alive you know but look some of that stuff is funny it's actually yeah. funny when you when you when you think of it but again it's like it's like commonsensical things look in the case of um Alec Murdoch down in South Carolina which mm. I know you know a lot about, there was so much electronic evidence that in fact a TikTok video put him on the murder scene it, within minutes of the murders. And that was if you if you want to say, and a lot of people hate this expression, if you want to talk about smoking gun evidence, yeah. in that case, that was it. And his son took that video and and he lied about it from and he just couldn't he couldn't get past that. So yeah. Today all of this electronic evidence, cell phone evidence, video camera evidence uh, in vehicles, computer evidence, it's just it's just unbelievable. And we always have to be aware of that before we get into the sci- you know other scientific evidence that could go against this other evidence.
1: Absolutely. And even, you know, look at this uh, again with the Gilgo Beach Killer. They were able to triangulate cell phone calls bouncing off towers from Massapequa Park, Midtown Manhattan, where he worked. You know, they, they put together a beautiful, beautiful timeline um, based on, on cell phone calls. Those things, those records, they're there and they'll get you. And of course, uh, uh, CCTV, you know, video cameras everywhere. I mean, you can watch a guy walk to a, a store, buy a gun, walk out, kill somebody, walk to his house, dispose of the weapon. You can see everything on videotape these days between doorbell cameras and police cameras and uh, the security cameras on storefronts. It's beautiful. You can watch the whole movie.
0: It's, it actually is incredible. And, and we, well, I've been out of this biz for almost 12 years now. But we as investigators, you have to be up on this stuff. And I remember even when I was on the, I retired in 2011, and I was in the Detective Bureau for 16 years and uh, my last 10 Manhattan North Homicide Squad. I remember I had guys in my squad that made me look like an elementary school student at the computer (laughs) and at the cell phone. They were so good at it because they grew up with it. I was in the next generation. Yeah. That wasn't taught computers in the school. I'm, when I went back to get my master's degree in 2000, I didn't know how to use Microsoft Word. I was like, oh, no, you know, and, and I didn't know how to cut and paste. I didn't know how to do any of that stuff. And I like slowly learned, but I felt like, you know, look at us. We're walking. Look at us. We're talking, you know, as I was, <laughs> as I was studying for my master's degree. And it wasn't funny because I would sometimes have a paper with seven or eight pages and I'd hit the wrong button, and the whole paper was lost. And I'd be like, "Ah."
1: Yep. You know. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, in my day, they faxed me a handwritten, you know, report sheet, uh, dispatching me somewhere, and I handwrote my reports. And we used Polaroid photographs back in '92. Um, you know, then I'd write on the Polaroids, and 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 those things are faded away now. And that's some of that's still good evidence, but. Now everything is digital. They do it all on computers and tablets and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I'm going to say one thing that applies to all of us, to you and I and, and a lot of the people that have retired since. Nothing beats that, that talent, the talent for observation, interpretation, detail, um, and for a basic understanding of human nature that a good detective, a good investigator has. We've got experience of 23 years, 25 years, that just working with human beings and doing this job, uh, AI cannot replace it, and uh, computers can't replace it, and video cameras can't replace it. You know, that's it's, it's good stuff. Barbara, and- 100%. I, I, before I went to Homicide, I was
0: in the 2-3 detective squad in Spanish Harlem, which I thought was one of, personnel-wise, was one of the best squads in the city. These guys yeah. were fantastic, you know? And when we would have a Homicide, I would just like, bring everybody in! Bring the whole neighborhood in! And <laughs> the, that was the old expression, <laughs> that was the old expression, shake the tree, you know? Yeah. Let's shake the tree and see the coconuts fall out. And one of these coconuts is going to be the information we need to solve this murder. And they used to go like, Sarge, take it easy. Take it easy. Bring everyone, bring the whole family, you know. And (laughs) and you know something? It worked to us, but it worked because these detectives were so good at getting people to confess and getting statements and getting people to tell the truth that that's what that was all about. And I learned so much about investigation from those detectives. I, you know, look, I was a Sergeant too early in my career. Four years and 10 months, I made sergeant. So mm. I was a patrol sergeant and I was a plain clothes guy because I was a street crime and I couldn't wait to get back into plain clothes. It never occurred to me, oh, I want to be a, a detective boss, you know? So when yeah. I first got into the detective, I was a rip sergeant. And I don't want to talk too much about you, me, because this is about you, but I'm just filling this stuff in. And then all of a sudden, I was like, wow, investigation's pretty cool. And I think you learned that too from yeah. being a, a, a death investigator. And you know what? I want to get into barbers because, like, the scenes, the scenes that you've been to, and 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 the science that you apply to these scenes—about gunshot wounds, entry wounds, exit wounds—you know—I I, I can't tell you how many times I, I've been to a scene and go, "Oh, this is a suicide," you know, but the gun's gone. But I still think it's a suicide. Then you you spot the second gunshot wound, and you say, "This is no, this is no suicide. This is no boating accident," you know. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Although we do have that, that guy that was found uh, down in the financial district with um, two gunshot wounds to the chest, and it was a suicide. But the first shot, it didn't kill him, so he shot himself again. I mean, how much pain do you have to be in psych- psychically, uh, psychologically, emotionally? to be able to withstand the pain of two gunshot wounds. How bad do you got to want to die? Unbelievable. You're unbelievable. unbelievable. Right. But there were times, um, I mean, just, just experience and observation. So I go to a case and, uh, I think it was up in the three, two, it was a tenement apartment and there was a guy at the base of the stairs dead with what they told me was a gunshot wound to his head right in the center. And, uh, you know, they always call me and say, Barbara, uh, we got a homicide. And I say, no, no, it's not a homicide till I say it's a homicide. She <laughs> right? must keep- have loved you. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, you got to keep an open mind, right? Sure. You can't walk in saying it's a homicide. You have to observe everything, take the scene in. So the guy's laying at the bottom of the stairs, and there is a hole in his head. And there's also twenty-two caliber uh, casings. Uh, bullet casings in the hallway like a lot of them like maybe two dozen and they said oh it looks like he was shot with a 22. and when i get close to the guy i notice now he's laying face down at the bottom of the stairs and he stinks of alcohol and the when i noticed the wound it, it didn't have the the ring abrasion of a bullet wound and it had more like a like a laceration look to it like um that stellate, like like a little star. I thought, oh, what the hell is that? Then I look and at the bottom of the stairs where the the two walls meet in a corner, the lower molding is made of stone and it comes to a really sharp point at the corner. Hmm. When I get in real close on that corner, I see that there's blood on it and a little bit of tissue. So what happened is this guy was drunk, He fell down the stairs, and when he got to the bottom, he hit his head right square on this pointed stone coping and killed him just like that. So I'm telling the guys, and I said, guys, this looks like an accident to me. And, of course, they're happy. That's one less homicide to solve. But they say, wait a second, Barbara, what about all these shell casings? I said, let's look around. Now, it's a tenement so that that hallway goes out to the back door to an alleyway. And we walk down the alleyway out to the back door, and there's a big target on the fence of the alley. Turns out that a bunch of kids use this as a shooting gallery, as to play target practice with a .22 pistol. So once they do the canvas and they talk to the neighbors, they're like, "Yeah, the damn kids are always out there shooting the .22 into the into the back alleyway." And uh, good, now it's an accident. Okay, but that's just, again, the power of observation, experience, and keeping an open mind. But there were plenty of times where I was fooled um, and never could figure out exactly what happened because the evidence was just too um, ambiguous. For instance, the mummy, there was a squat building downtown in the East Village You know, where no one, the building was abandoned, but people lived in it and hauled in buckets of water. And we go up to see this guy, he's laying on a bed and he's a mummy. He looked like a pile of dead leaves. There was no internal organs left, just a skeleton covered with this brown, leathery, um, peeling skin. So obviously he had died during a dry spell when it was cool and... You know, he just turned into a mummy. In fact, when I, when I went to turn him over by pulling his arm, the arm came off. So I'm looking at him and I realize, oh, all his internal organs are gone. And this room is full of rats. They're running behind the stove and everything else. The officer says, yeah, it looks to me like the rats ate his internal organs and then it was nice and warm in there for them. So, of course, he didn't decompose. He just mummified. But here's the interesting thing. In his chest cavity, there was a bullet just rattling around in there loose. So the guys say, oh, geez, you think he was shot? Is it a homicide? I said, I don't know. We have no external wounds to look at. It could have been a war wound. It could have been an accident. Maybe he was shot years before and it didn't kill him. Uh, He could have done it himself in a suicide or someone else could have shot him. We will never know if it was a homicide, a suicide, or an accident. Or if it even had anything to do with his death, he could have died of a heart attack with a bullet, an old one, just rattling around inside him. Cause unknown, to, you know, cause and manner unknown, pending police investigation. Oh, that's
0: the ones they hate. Dad, puppy, that, puppy, they
1: cuppy, cuppy, they would call it. yeah.
0: <laughs> they wanted to kill you. Let's kill Butcher and then we'll get rid of this <laughs> case.
1: <laughs> exactly, exactly. The dreaded cuppy. Yeah,
0: That's right. You know, Barbara, I want to also, let's uh, get back to your book and, of course, What the Dead Know. And basically, the title is is telling everyone what this book is about because it's what the dead are going to tell us yeah. and what are they going to tell us through science. But what I want to know from you, and you're alive, obviously, Miss Butcher, <laughs> I want to <laughs> know from you, how hard was it to sit down And write this book. And look, lots of it is stored right up in your cranial cavity. And Mm -hmm. again, we all get times, dates, people, we all get things wrong. But you're remembering, you're sort of what I call synopsizing
1: what your experience. How, How difficult was that? You know, at first, it started out easy. It was during COVID. My consulting business was dying out. Nobody was doing anything. So... I thought, you know what, I could die of this COVID thing. So all these stories I've been carrying around in my head for years, if I'm ever gonna get them out, now's the time. So I start writing the stories of all the cases and all the things I've seen, all the interesting things. And then I hand it to my editor and he says, where are you? I said, I'm here writing, what are you talking about? He says, no, where were you in the story? I wanna see you, how you felt, what you smelled, what you saw, what you tasted everything I want to take I want the reader to be there with you. And I was like, oh, okay, I, I can do that. Well, that was emotionally devastating. It's one thing to tell a good story, but it's another thing to show the the readers what you felt. and that was really hard and I'm not gonna lie. there were times I cried because thinking about you know those those girls killed by that serial killer up in the, uh, in East Harlem, at Aaron, Key. Aaron,
0: Aaron Key. Uh, yeah.
1: yeah. You know, those 13, 14, 15 year old girls. And I thought about how devastated I was at their lives, the loss of their dreams and their hopes. And I just cried and cried. Or oh, the lady who jumped out of the, jumped off her roof and, and had the, um, uh, the, the tattoo from Auschwitz, she was a concentration camp survivor. And I'm thinking, my God, you you survived 50, six, fifty years after the concentration camps. What could happen now to you to make you want to kill yourself after that? And those lives just uh, washed through me. It was real hard. And then I decided to get honest about, you know, my alcoholism, about about how the job affected me emotionally, about what it did, especially 9-11. And uh, it, it, to be vulnerable, you know, it doesn't suit me too well. I don't like it. But yeah, I decided I you know, to go for it.
0: Barbara, that's, you know, I know you've dabbled in acting. I've dabbled in acting. And one of the hardest things is to let it go, you know, yeah. and like do a scene where you get so emotionally involved in this, real tears running down your face. And I would imagine writing is probably acting times too, especially when you are writing about things that you were involved in, you know, and it's got, it's gotta be, look, and there's, there's a level of PTSD. We all have those, we all have those pictures popping into our brains at times. We don't even want them to pop into our brains of the horrific things we've seen. Mm -hmm. And that's what, you know, that's what I want to know right now. Why? How did you do it, and how did you cope with it, and how did you bring back those, some of the things, horrible memories, and how did you deal with it?
1: You know, um, when I was first in training, uh, one of the first autopsies I watched, it was being done by Dr. Jackie Lee. It was an 8-year-old girl who had been raped and smothered and thrown in a garbage heap in the Bronx. And I'm looking at this case, at this this little pretty little girl. And I, I'm, I'm terror stricken. I'm, I'm horrified. I, it's like evil is staring me in the face. And I said, Jackie, how the hell do you do it? How do you do this job every day and then go home at night? And she said, Barbara, you've got to surround yourself with things of beauty. When you leave here every day, You've got to participate in art and music and dance and love and food, all the good things in the world. And you have to create. You have to, creation is a bulwark against all the death, despair and destruction we see. So I I thought that was a, a good lesson and then I forgot it for a couple of years. But then when things started getting really bad, when I was overwhelmed with the evil, I got myself a little house up in the Catskills in a little abandoned, shitty little town. But it was a cute little house, and I could fix it up. And I had grass and trees and a dog and a cat. And that helped me participate in, in life again, to see the good of life. And um, and then in time, after World Trade Center, it got bad again. I mean, my God, the things we saw, Bill, were... Yeah. You know, still to this day, I can't hardly describe them. And uh, I started getting, like, severe PTSD. I couldn't drive past, uh, you know, on Park Avenue when you hit around 96th Street, those walls uh, that shield the trains, those cement walls. I started thinking, oh, I I drive up here every day. That wall's going to collapse on me. Or I bet a car is going to come jumping out through the tunnel and crash into me. I bet my children, my grandchildren, are going to be attacked by pedophiles. Suddenly, everything was a disaster for me. I was hypervigilant and catastrophizing everything. Every driver to me was a drunken maniac. Um, every plane flying overhead could crash at any moment. Because, I mean, don't forget, we were doing plane crashes, too. You know, flight 587 right after World Trade Center, the anthrax poisonings, the the train crashes. Every time you turn around, there was some other disaster. And so that became a part of my life was the constant fear of death or, or maiming. You know, every car that I saw was going to drive up on the sidewalk and squash me. You know? So I didn't do too well for a while there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I tell you, Barbara, well, how how therapeutic was it to write this book?
1: Very, very therapeutic because I had not cried about any of these cases before. I hadn't let myself, I just thought, oh, that was such an interesting case. Um, but then in writing it, I felt the feelings, finally, that I had shut down for so, so long. And now... Feeling them, mourning those deaths. Um, you know, I, I had I had a friend murdered. A guy I was I was in an acting in a play with. Uh, you know, he was murdered, and and I did the investigation. I'm like, holy wow. shit, that's Manny! Oh my god! So it was very therapeutic to finally feel those feelings, to get it all out, and to be honest about what happened to me.
0: And but
1: how Barbara,
0: I got through it. Just a, a quick, funny aside. You were telling that story that you investigated a friend's murder, and there's nothing funny about that. But I would be up in Harlem at, inside a crime scene, and someone would say, hi, Professor Cannon. <laughs> <laughs> I <would> just, <laughs> and I would, I would just bust out laughing, like, oh, my God. You Because know? yeah. at the time, I was teaching at a college, and I just – I just thought that was very funny. I I had to tell because I know you have a great great sense of humor. Now let me get right back to you again because I don't want I sometimes I have a habit. My wife always tells me you have a habit of always inserting you into things. Okay. (laughs) So I'm gonna get I'm gonna try to get I'm gonna try to get away from that. What do you want people Mm. to take away from your book after they have read your book? What do you want them to take? What do you want them to know about Barbara Butcher? What do you want them to know about a medical legal investigator? What do you want them to know about the history of some of the crimes you've gone to. What do you want them to take away from the the other look at 9-11 and how, oh my God, that must've been horrific. And I asked you about five quick rapid, I told this is going to be (laughs) an interview with a detective investigator. Just there's no hot lights this time, Barbara.
1: You know, there's a couple of things to take away. One is we don't have that long. The death rate is now up to 100%. And you know, we're all going to die. You don't have that long. So take the time to enjoy every second of your life and to be kind, you know, why not? Um, But mainly I want people to know that each and every single one of those lives that I investigated, every one of those people that died, they were all important. Each one of us is important. Each one of us is a little universe unto ourselves. We have families and friends and children and all these things around us. So the death of one person has a ripple effect and it's, it can be devastating. Um, It's painful. And those people, whether they were mopes who got shot in a drug deal or a little old lady who was run over by a car, every one of those lives counted. And the other thing is that we share everything in common. 99.9% of our DNA is all the same. And we all have hopes and dreams and, and, and people we love. And it's, it's a it's a way to connect. I, I, I would, this was my way to connect to people was to write this book. And I hope that in reading it, people see that they have ways to connect to, to every little stranger is is one of us. And I think nothing exemplifies it more than the 9-11 disaster, because there's a saying that one death is a tragedy and a million deaths is a statistic. But when you're crawling through the rubble of buildings that you once loved, and hunting for tiny scraps of flesh of human beings. And the smoke and fire and everything around you. And you're scared and you're terrified and you're sick from it. And then you come across somebody's little desk calendar. And it says, lunch with Jim, 1 o'clock on 9-11. Or a, a graduation picture from elementary school. Um, oh, yeah, I remember a, a little pen set. It was a golf ball. It was a souvenir of a hole in one on a piece of wood with a little holder for a pen. That was somebody's prized possession. These were not statistics. These were not body parts. These were people with lives just like you and me. And we all have our funny little habits and our crazy little ways. And we're all just like each other. So... And the other thing I'd like people to take away and particularly people in the profession, all first responders or last responders like me, is that these jobs are incredibly, incredibly tough. We need help. Cops, EMTs, firefighters, medical legal death investigators, we're seeing the worst of what can happen to people, the absolute worst. And yeah, we're strong and we're tough and we can take it, but we need help. Um, it's not about like in the old days, they said, ah, now we're strong. We can do it. No, we need someone to talk to. We need to talk to our colleagues about what we've seen. We need to share our feelings, uh, because a lot of us are getting destroyed. A lot of us.
0: Barbara, you said that very well. And, I, you know, we've done uh, on my show, police off the Cup real crime stories. We've done a lot of shows on PTSD, we had the great Dr. Stephen Washkell on numerous times and other people that deal with that. And it's true. It's like police departments, if you have a, a mental health issue to me, to them, you're damaged goods, you know, yeah. and it can't be viewed that way. They got to recognize that as one of the dangers of this profession, you know, and that they have to treat that danger of this profession. And, uh, especially when when cops retire that's when a lot of cops have real problems with suicide and the mm-hmm. PTSD hits them right and all of a sudden they were part of this you know as they say a front row seat to the greatest show on earth they were part of that for 20 25 30 35 years 40 years some of these guys and then they retire and they're like wow now i'm just yeah. john q citizen i'm no longer police officer detective sergeant lieutenant captain chief whatever and i don't have that title anymore you know bobby you said something before a word that brought me back to the one of the funniest things you used the word mope and that was some, yeah. that was a word that was so used in fact at manhattan central booking when i came on a job in 1985 i made an arrest i went down there and where the perps would get their picture taken there was two footprints on the floor and it said mope <laughs> On the floor. And I was like, that is so classic. But, you know, today they would be like, oh, my God, paint that up if anyone sees that, you know. But I just, look, that's one of the funny things. Most people,
1: they don't know the crime of mopery. The moping around, you know, just acting bad, acting strange, not acting right. It's just, you know, it's a petty thing. But mopes became it's, know, it was a, it's, a, it's
0: a great word let me move on Bob I wanted to try to do this in under an hour but almost okay. we're so close 9-11 you mentioned 9 and first I want to mention one other thing before obviously in the book your love for Dr. Hirsch is mm-hmm. uh, so evident and um, a mentor a friend and yeah. 9-11 was very much also connected to Dr. Hirsch but it, it it was an event that unless you responded to it, unless you lived through it, you really can't understand that if you live in Florida, if you live in California, it was a New York thing, you know, and it was almost like also New York came together like I've never seen it come together before. Cops and firemen, and everyone were heroes. Three months later, we were the pricks we had always been, (laughs) you know. But for three months, we were this holier than thou representation of New York City, you know. And a lot of that had to do with this horrific incident that occurred. Our country had been attacked, almost 3,000 people were killed ordinary civilians working in the building, making a living for their families. And we, the first responders didn't waver. We went down there, and we knew it was this was bad news. This shit, although what well, politicians said, all the air is yeah. perfectly, perfectly safe. Christine Todd Whitman will be famous or infamous for that statement. Yeah, you know, yeah. as we knew, breathing that in without masks, because when we first got down there, there were no masks. No masks. We were getting bandanas. We looked like the Bloods. We were getting red bandanas from the bodegas. Hey, can we get, get some, you know, some bandanas put over our face? But then the aftermath of it, and, you know, one of these pictures I pulled up, and you can take a look at this, that tells me some, I remember these were all over the city. And it was so sad to see it. It, Folks, what it is, is if you're listening to this podcast and not watching it, family members put pictures of their loved ones who were missing and said, have you seen so-and-so? And And these were people that were lost uh, in the towers. And many of them Never recovered, or even that's pieces right. of their bodies, never ever recovered, and that's um, something everyone had to deal with. I yeah. think that's a great, a great sign. Reposed behind this wall are the remains of many who perished at the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001. The repository is made by,
1: maintained
0: by the Office of the Chief Medical Examiner of the City of New York. So,
1: yeah, forty percent of the people, I think. I think it's around forty percent never identified, and you know Dr. Hirsch had made a commitment that we would do whatever it takes for as long as it takes until every single victim was identified, and that's still going on today. They're still working on those remains, trying desperately to get a little piece of DNA out of a burned, fragmented piece of tissue. They'll go on forever with that. But you so know, so those
0: fr- those freezers, those truck freezers, they're still down there with. With body parts in them.
1: No, what we did is we had all those refrigerated trucks and then we did a freeze drying process that enabled us to keep them in packages in a cool environment. It's lightly refrigerated, but they'll never decompose now. They're vacuum sealed and they're opened only when we have to do a resampling and then sealed up again. And uh, that process stopped them from decomposing
0: because they were
1: were already pretty bad. Um, And you know, you mentioned Dr. Hirsch, he he was there uh, and when the towers collapsed, they fell on him. And I don't know if you remember Diane Chrissy, one of my fellow investigators. Dr. Hirsch was badly hurt. Uh, His ankle, the ligaments were torn. He had a 14 inch gash in his arm. He had a head injury. He was, every one of his ribs were broken. And Diane, uh, you know, her leg was fractured. The bone was sticking out. She had a head injury. And they were thrown on boats and taken over to Jersey. Well, after he made sure that Diane was okay in this hospital, over somewhere in Jersey, he went and said to the uh, guys on the boats down by the piers, he said, take me back to the city. And they go, no, 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 it's too dangerous. They're not going to let us in. He went and paid some guy with a little dinghy boat. He gave him cash and said, get me back to New York. And he went right back to the office. Um, He gave them 10 minutes to sew up his arm. And they gave him a pair of crutches. I don't know how he could even breathe with all his ribs broken, but he got right back in that office and he got right back to work. And he mustered his people up and said, we're going to do this. We can do it. So, uh, the only man I ever really loved,
0: <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, I Barbara, meant... I thought you loved me,
1: <laughs> yes, but that's more in sort of a physical attraction way. <laughs> that's <is> great, yeah. <laughs> you no, know, Barbara, was...
0: it's, it's so, um, as I said, th- this book it really struck me uh, uh, to the point that I read it in three days. And I'm not trying to give a sales pitch, people can buy it, they cannot buy it they Can read it, they can have you, and I understand you're the voice in the um, in the what do they call it? The audio book, right?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, I did it myself. I read the uh, read the book out for the audio. That's
0: fantastic. You got a little acting in there, too. You know, sure, you got, a little, yeah. you got yeah. writing, you got acting. There's oops, too bad there was no dancing that you could do, but there was uh...
1: <laughs> not a good dancer.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Barbara, I, I just again, I'll, I'll plug this a little bit. The book is called. What the dead know? Barbara Butcher, the uh, Chief of Staff of the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. I think the years when 1992 is when you first came on the job. And I, I think you left in, was it 2014, Barbara? 2015. Yeah. 2015. Okay. And she left in 2015. Um, a lot, you know, a lot more lines on your face. Uh, mm. You know where People <laughs> yeah. can tell. Not just me. Not just you. I'm talking about myself, too. People can tell by looking in your eyes, the experience and what you've seen. They really can, you know, and it's something like, you know, they look at you and uh, they can see where you've been by looking in your eyes, you know, and it's an amazing thing. And, and um, look, I'm a great observer of people because I was, you know, an anti-crime cop for six and a half years of my 27 years. And of course, a cop should be a great observer, and I've looked at things. I've looked at body language. I've looked at the way people move, and I think I'm pretty good at it, you know. And I just know that this book must have been so difficult to write, but yet, in the same vein, Barbara, it's got to be liberating that you felt you feel, feel like a part of you now has been freed up. And don't let me speak for you. I'm just yeah. interpreting <laughs> what I see. A part of you had to be have been freed up through writing this book. And now you're like, all right, give me the next project. Sure. <laughs> give me one of those movie megaphones. I want to be a director
1: now. You know. <laughs> well, actually, there is a show coming out and uh, on Netflix. Um, I don't even know the title yet. It'll be at the end of the year, but um, yeah, I'm I'm working on some television projects right now, uh, looking to develop some stuff. So, you know, we'll see. Um, but yes, it's a huge relief to have told those stories finally to get those feelings off my chest and to hopefully eh, maybe people learn something out of the book at the very least if you like true crime you learn a lot about forensics in the book you know how to calculate time of death bullet exits entries ballistics all kinds of make stuff. sure you
0: look at that cell phone first
1: <laughs> that's right that's right or, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it, I, I'm so glad I finally did it. It's like, you know, like giving birth. So.
0: Well, Barbara, you're a wonderful person, and I'm so thrilled to have done this interview. And a lot of times when I do interviews, of course, on Police officer, the Cuff Real Crime Stories, I have some other things. I could go to a video. I could do this. Thing. We spoke for over an hour, and I, I knew I was going to yeah. be able to do it because it was with you. And I, I feel very, uh, it's easy to talk to you, you know. Thank and, you, uh, Bill. It's not always so easy to talk to everyone. You know, like if you ask someone a question, they say, no. (laughs) They they say, yes, I agree. And then you're like, I'm going to kill this person if they give me one more one-word answer, you know. I'm going to call Barbara Butcher to investigate this death scene, you know.
1: Well, you're a good interviewer, Bill, but the main thing is you get it. You understand me. I understand you. We get what we've been through. And uh, it makes a big difference. Thank you
0: you so much, Barbara. Final words, and then I'll let you go.
1: Final words. You don't have that much time, folks. Be kind to each other. Stay safe.
0: God bless everyone. Have a great day. This was Law and Crime Author Series with Bill Cannon. And what's your name of your book again? What the Dead Know (laughs) by Barbara Butcher. Have a great day, everyone.
1: One episode just ain't enough.